Coming up, the number one fantasy book podcast, breaking down the scrolls and spells of nerd culture. We're Phantology. You may have heard of us. Whatever. There are so many excellent life lessons and really hard-hitting facts about life you can find in fantasy books. Maybe not every fantasy book, but honestly, most of the books that I read, I come away a better person because I've learned more about myself, I've learned more about the world. If anyone ever tells me that fantasy is not literature, don't do it. Do not come on Discord and do that. (laughs) Well, I think if people are listening to this podcast even, then they're probably not in that camp. Hello, demons, specters, and witches, and welcome to another episode of Phantology. This is Steven. I have Josh on with me today. And we're going to be discussing book two of His Dark Materials, The Subtle Knife by Philip Pullman. What's up, Josh? Steven, I'm happy to be with you. Yeah, so we just recently reviewed the first episode. And if you are interested in His Dark Materials, feel free to check out that episode. We're going to continue on with the third book and then also get into the TV show that just came out. And I haven't watched yet, but you've watched it, right, Josh? Yeah, I've watched it, and I really enjoyed it. If you listened to our last episode, you'll know that. So, Yeah, yeah, that was a bit of a setup, because I already knew that. But uh, I am planning on watching as well once I get through. Well, we'll see when I start, actually. And I should just say, before we go too far, if you like the content we're putting out, check us out on Discord, on Patreon, on all the other social networks. We are at Phantology Books, and we even have a website now www.phantologybooks.com for all of your Phantology books related needs. Very nice. I'm excited about these developments, Stephen. The website looks awesome. Yeah, yeah. Definitely exciting times for fantasy book lovers. For sure. And the Discord is always popping. We uh, have some good conversations and some healthy disagreements. I will say that, you know, there are disagreements in there, but nothing is toxic. Like everyone is very uh, polite, even when, you know, the subjects turn to like things that people are usually pretty passionate about. People stay respectful in there. So if you're in for a respectful conversation about fantasy and, and a discussion about it, jump on our Discord. Yeah, no matter what your opinion on coronavirus, feel free to join our Discord. We're growing a little community and we'd love for everyone to be a part of it. So let's jump into The Subtle Knife. This book for me was a bit of an up and down. I thought it was more of a bridge set up into the third book than a story into itself. So that was a bit of the downside for me. Uh, Just too much of a setup, not enough actual substance in the book. But at the same time, the characters are still really strong. The events are just interesting. And all the symbolism really just kind of pulls me in as I think about, okay, what does this mean? And and what are some of the deeper meanings here? So overall, enjoyed the book quite a bit. What did you think, Josh? Yeah, it definitely... um... Struggles with the same thing a lot of second books and trilogies struggle with. Uh, I thought that they did an amazing job at introducing a new character that you really grow to care about and will, and we won't get too far into spoilers. I just think it did a great job in introducing his character. And then other things about the book, like I didn't really remember a whole lot. I went back and read the summary, and I just read the book last year, but there are a lot of events that just kind of move the characters from one location to another and one piece of information to another piece and they're kind of forgettable. Yeah, agreed in that there's definitely some forgettable things. I'm historically not a huge fan of second books and unfortunately this kind of falls in that camp. I 
understand it's hard. It's you know, if you're an author, you think of a beginning and you get going and then you think of a cool end and then you're like, okay, where am I gonna how am I gonna get the events from here to here? And I think that's where authors sometimes struggle. And that's where this was for me. But like you said, there are there were quite a few good characters and that really just kind of kept it going enough where I, I still liked it enough definitely to keep on reading and to get into the third. So anything else we want to talk about before we jump into spoilers? Yeah, let's just do a quick little recap of what you can expect from the series. So like we talked about in the first book, this is kind of a YA series, kind of not. The themes are more YA in that there's really no content. This kind of covers our content warning that we typically do. There's no language. There's there's no sexual content. There's, there is some violence, though, and there are some more adult themes, but the tone of the book is more YA. So that's definitely something you can expect. It's more of a young adult adventure type book. Yeah, and it, it follows a, a younger protagonist that are always having fun adventures, but that do focus on some pretty heavy themes and some pretty uh, adult themes at time. So I think it's one that both youth and adults can enjoy and get something out of. Yeah, it's definitely a, a fun adventure book, but at the same time, there are some quite adult and very harsh penalties for some things that happen there. It doesn't shy away from death. And unfortunately, we see some characters meet their demise. Very nice. Yeah. So starting from there, let's do a quick recap of where things left off on book one. If uh, you haven't listened to that podcast, go back and listen to it. But we'll do a quick recap on where our main characters left off. Yeah. So at the end of book one, we learn that Lord Azrael and Mrs. Coulter, who we've previously learned are Lyra's parents, we've now learned that they are, in fact, both villains and they've opened this doorway into who knows where. Another world is what we understand, but we don't really understand quite what it is yet. And the process in which they have done that is they've killed Roger. They separated Roger from his demon. Roger was Lyra's little friend. And he's now unfortunately been sacrificed in order to, I guess, harness the dust energy thing that we still don't really understand. And that has powered this gateway into what just this shimmering light yeah and and so doing that lord israel sacrificed roger to create that to get the power to create that gateway uh lyra failed in her objective of uh saving him in the end she did save him from the gobblers but failed to save him from her own father lord israel that she had placed her trust in the entire time and it was a pretty tragic ending i thought for book 1 yeah pretty climactic pretty pretty exciting there was a very nice reveal in that Lord Israel was actually bad and had some unexpected motives that are are going to continue to come to bear throughout the rest of the series. I actually kind of forgot about the whole threat of the gobblers. I thought that was one of the more interesting aspects of the first book. Unfortunately, they're no longer a plot element in the second book because the threats are a little more realized and they're not as murky as just the gobblers that snatch children. Yeah, it, that was definitely kind of a driving force that got Lyra to get out of Oxford, but it pretty quickly disappeared, especially after she rescued Roger from their base camp up there. So that was end of book one. And now as we get into spoilers for book two, The Subtle Knife, the action picks up with Lyra in this unfamiliar area, right? It's this new territory that they're in. It's called... Uh, Chitagatse, I think, if I'm pronouncing that right. 
Yeah, it's a hard one to pronounce. It's a hard one to, even after you listen to the audiobook, I still never was confident in pronouncing it. So yeah, we're not really sure what's going on as the action starts. And slowly we kind of get get more and more. And also, like you said, Josh, Will is the new character that's introduced and he takes up his exposition is really kind of the beginning of this book as we get his backstory a bit and he starts to become a full-fledged character in of himself. So what did you think of having another boy in there? I mean, for the first book, we kind of followed Roger, who almost was the damsel in distress type character. And then in this book, we have Will introduced, who is much more of a fully realized character, I'd say, than Roger was, and has his own motives and is also a capable character, unlike Roger was. Yeah, Will is so much better than Roger because he actually has, he's actually a character. Roger was like hardly even a person. He didn't have much of a voice at all. He was just there in order to move the plot along. But Will is making decisions and he's not always in line with what Lyra is doing. I think we're going to see that more in the third book. That is one of the more interesting things that I'm looking forward to in the third book. So yeah, Will is Will is awesome. I, I like Will quite a bit. Yeah, and so we had talked about in the in the last episode how they took elements from book two and interwove them in in uh, the first season of the show, and so that's kind of what they did. Is around midway through the season they started picking up Will's storyline and introducing you to him and his story with his mother and how he's caring for his his mentally distraught mother, and they start building out his character really well in season one. The child actor for him is does a really good job. And so I'm really excited. That's what I think I'm most excited about the show moving on is how this favorite character of mine from the books is already being given more screen time than he was even in the books. So this is going to be this question that I'm going to ask you is going to be a bit of a spoiler for the first season of the show. But I mean, we're talking about the first two books anyway. So plot is already out there. Is Will, do Will and Lyra meet up in the first season of the TV show? It ends with them both going through the uh, different anomalies. Okay. So I can't remember. I would have to go back and watch the last episode. I can't remember if they actually meet, but it's like leads right into how the second book starts. Okay. And I, I like that because I think in a second season of a TV show, if they were to just press the reset button and say, okay, here's our next child and his backstory it would seem a little clunky. So I, I think I like that decision. I haven't seen the show yet, but it makes sense. Yeah. So that's a prime example of something that was like changed, a definite change from the book, but still stayed true enough to the source material and just made everything better and elevated everything and did it in a way that made sense for the new medium that it was showing on. So for things like when we talk about the Wheel of Time show, how there's going to be changes in that and different adaptions. I'm all for changing stuff that makes sense, but this is something that they did a really good job with. And I think, you know, other creators could learn from. Yeah, I think if you'd asked me this question like five years ago, I'd be like, no way, never change anything. The books are the source of all truth ever. Any TV show or movie that changes from that is wrong. But now, no, I'm totally with you. They These are different mediums of expression. And yeah, you can totally change. I mean, just stay true to the heart of the story and keep the main plots and characters the same. But yeah, by all means, change the plot around to make a better story on the screen. Yeah. And so I think that the the show, again, uh, made me remember how much I really liked Will from the book and um, how he's a really caring character. He really cares for his mom. He really 
wants to figure out like his whole relationship with his dad, which we'll get into later. But um, he feels like I think he's missing a part of himself that he doesn't know what it is, but he's on kind of a journey to find it. And so I love Will's character and I'm sad that he wasn't in the first book, but I'm looking forward to uh, hearing your thoughts, more of your thoughts, and um, especially as you read the third book. Yeah, one of my takes on Will was I thought him and Lyra were really good foils for each other. Lyra is, if you listen to the first podcast, I really like how impertinent and obnoxious Lyra is at times, and she always gets her way and just bosses adults around as she's so clever. Will is totally the opposite in that he is more subtle and quiet and sneaky, and I think it fits that he ends up getting the knife because the subtle knife goes with the subtle character, while Lyra is uh, is maybe the more clever, smart one that has the alethiometer that can kind of solve problems. I also think that Will represents our society a lot better than Lyra does, which makes sense because he comes from a world that I'm not, I was never completely sure if it was like his world was our world or was just a closer version to our world than Lyra's was. But I think that he represents what life is like in reality, you know, where like not every family, I mean, Lyra comes from a dysfunctional family as well, obviously, but where everything seems to work out for Lyra in a lot of ways, whereas Will has a lot of hard knocks and he is caring for his mother that is dealing with trauma. And I think he does a really good job of representing reality and grounding the reader in reality. Yeah. Like if I had to paint a picture of Will, I would definitely use gray quite a bit because he's more of a dour character. And like you say, things don't always work out for him, but Lyra is more of a bright colors and she's very expressionate and has a lot of exciting things happen for her. I mean, not everything works out well for her, but I think Will's character would, like you say, be more of a reflection of our world. And so, yeah, I like that. I hadn't thought of that before. Yeah. And so I think it does a really good job of blending like what would happen if some fantastical world came into contact with our world and two, two characters that had similar enough motives that they were going to team up. The, I think it represents those kind of reactions really well. And so I was I was happy with it. That was honestly what made the second book feel like a really strong entry for me, even if some of the plot elements didn't quite work for me. So the moment where they do come in contact with each other was one of my favorite lines in the series. And I made a note of this. And then I looked at the Goodreads little blurb. And this was quoted at the very top of the blurb. So obviously, a lot of people like this line. But Lyra meets Will and asks the alethiometer, should I trust him? And the alethiometer says, oh, he's a murderer. And Lyra says, oh, great, I can trust him because, you know, he's he's a murderer. So I already know everything about him. I know that he's capable. I know that, you know, he's someone that I can rely on. I, I mean, it doesn't really make sense for us in our world, but it makes sense for her. And so then you see that juxtaposition between the fantasy world and the real world. And that's just summed up perfectly in that little situation. Wow, that's pretty intense and pretty jaded for a girl that's what, 12 years old or around about that. Yeah, it did seem a little weird. But I mean, if you think about Lyra's background, it kind of makes sense. Like she's seen a lot of people die. Yeah. And she's not her hands aren't exactly clean either. And if you kind of think about Roger, too, like, I don't think Roger would have been capable of killing someone, you know, his character. And so she might finally be excited to find someone that she wouldn't have to protect and would be able to protect himself a little bit. Yeah, she definitely needs someone that she can rely on at this point in her life. So she thinks that she has found that person in Will. Awesome. Okay, so let's get let's talk about some of the other just kind of plot beats of the story. So they they team up and then then what happens? 
Yeah, they team up and then there is a lot of back and forth in their storyline where they go back to Oxford in the real world and well our our real world and they go to the university Lyra meets up with a professor who's studying dark matter and she comes to understand that dark matter is kind of the analogous substance of dust in her world yeah and then she asked the Lyra asked the lithiometer right like should we should i trust the scientist should like what should i ask her and uh, the lithiometer tells Lyra to ask her to what like do more research into the into the dark matter and yes you see that's right so she relies on the lithiometer to go with the scientist i don't remember her name but at this point she also has met up with this kind of mysterious lord professor type who ends up stealing the the alethiometer from her they will lyra go to spy on the professor try to get it back he's meeting up with mrs coulter at this point they well, at this point, they've jumped back to Chitsugatse and have got the subtle knife, the magical knife, because this Lord guy has asked them to do so. This part of the plot was a little rough for me. I didn't quite understand, one, who had the knife that the, they fight this dude who's got the knife, and how did he have it? What exactly is the relevance of the knife? Why did they latch on to the idea so quickly? I think we kind of get bits and pieces as the plot moves forward, but it was a bit unsatisfactory to me as it was happening. Yeah, I I had similar feelings. I mean, so you have two MacGuffins in the story, right? You have the lithiometer, and then you have the subtle knife. And both of them can kind of do whatever they need to do in the moment. And you're right, it was kind of vague on... It just seemed like they were there, and they, they were where they needed to be to get the knife. I really did like how, during that fight, Will lost two of his fingers, and how you later find out uh, that that's like the sign that he was the person that was supposed to be carrying the knife. Yeah, when he lost the fingers, I was really taken aback. It's like, holy cow, fingers are off. This is really stepping up. I I had to like pause the book and make sure, like, did I really just hear that correctly? The kid's yeah. fingers got cut off. Yeah, this is like a almost like a Jamie moment in Game of Thrones, or like a Glockta moment of him cutting off fingers in in First Law. It was pretty violent. Are you just listing all the moments in fantasy books where people have cut off fingers and hands? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Well, the two shocking ones, I mean, for me, Glockta's torture scenes were always pretty shocking. And then when Jamie lost his hand, sorry for Game of Thrones spoilers. But yeah, when Jamie lost his hand, that was, especially in the episode, like he gets his hand chopped off and then like the metal music started playing right after. That was intense. Yeah, that was crazy. Just the look on his face when he's like, oh crap, yeah. my hand is gone. Yeah, because up to that point, he was... Uh, he thought he was pretty much invincible, right? Like they're, it's like they're not going to hurt me, you know. They don't want to provoke this. They're they're Starks. They're full of honor, and then nope, psh, hand off. I guess they weren't Starks. Well, there. yeah, the star. I mean, these were just bandits who cut off his hand. Were they, I thought he was still with uh, the Bannermen for? Well, I think it was Brotherhood without Banners that captured okay. him, right? But at this point, there was basically chaos throughout the countryside. Yeah. Anyway, all right. Well, that's a that's enough of a tangent. But this was on that level of shocking for me when he lost his fingers because up to this point in the series we have had violence, but we haven't had a lot of gore, I guess. And this was, you know, kind of gory. Yeah, I guess. And typically, when you are talking about fingers and hands, it would classically symbolize like your ability to do things to perform actions. So interesting that Will's fingers are getting cut off and he's being maimed, but at the same time. 
he is gaining the power to use this magical knife. We don't know exactly what it does quite yet, although you quickly see it like cutting rifts through reality and being able to, I guess, cut through everything is is how it's described. I have a theory about what's going to happen in the in the third book with the knife, if you want me to go there. Yeah, yeah, go there. Yeah, my theory is that the knife, I mean, we already know that Will is going to Lord Israel. Lord Israel is trying to kill the authority. I don't think it's too hard to put two and two together and think, okay, Lord Israel is going to use the knife to kill the authority who is basically God. Okay. All right. That's a that's a good theory. Yep. So mark it down. I'll let you know if I got the theory right when we record our third book review. Okay. There is, um, I'm not going to say if you're right or wrong, but there's another use for the knife in the third book that I, I really liked. So we'll wait till you read it. But um, they they use the knife well in the series, I think. Okay. So catching back up to the plot, which I was trying to explain, but didn't do a great job, was now that they have the knife, they go back and cut rifts through reality, jumping from world to world. They use it to successfully get the alethiometer back from Mrs. Coulter and Lord What's-His-Face. And then that pretty much wraps up their storyline up until, well... There's one more thing that happens with them. Um, they're like camped outside and Will finally comes into contact with his father who's been searching for the whole time. His father comes down, says, oh, you're the the special something. Don't remember the name of that role. And he tells them to seek out Lord Azriel and serve him. And then his father is killed right away, unfortunately, by a witch that he previously spurned her love. Yeah, now that was a pretty... Uh... That was one of the things that bugged me about this book. Here you have this incredible moment of father and son meeting of him kind of, in my eyes, getting a piece of himself that he's been looking for back. And then all of a sudden, just taken away from him. That was harsh. That was harsh. Yeah, that was definitely rough. I'm going to say, I'm going to jump right into our worst of the best, just because I don't want you to steal this one from me. And I'm going to say that was my worst of the best moment, because I thought it was an awesome moment where they're finally coming together. And then he gets killed. And honestly, I would have been okay if he was killed, if there was a reason behind it. But the reason just that like this random witch queen had once been spurned by him, so she could not help but kill him in this one moment, like really, that was kind of lame. Yeah, no, I totally agree. It was harsh um, to read. And I think it does go towards building Will's character more, but still hard. And then what I did like about that moment, though, even more than them meeting was then his father, you know, telling him to go with Lord Israel and setting up that like inherent conflict that, you know, is going to be, you know, explored more in book three of Lyra hating Lord Israel because he killed Roger and now will being told by his father to go team up with Lord Israel so that they can take down the authority. Like I was saying, this goes a lot towards what the second book is trying to do, which is set the stage for what I assume and hope is a dramatic ending. And so that was that was pretty awesome. Some other side things that happen is Mrs. Coulter is like torturing a witch, right? Yeah, that happens at the beginning. So I was just kind of going through the Will and Lyra storyline. There are like three, maybe more different storylines that actually happen in the book, which is another thing. I did not love because Lyra, look, Lyra is the star of the show here. Will is like the supporting actor. And so I wanted as much of them as possible. This whole storyline with Lee Scoresby and Seraphina Pecula, who is the witch that we're interested in for some reason, 
look, those things weren't interesting. I'm sorry. They just weren't. I totally agree. And this is where my worst of the best is going to come in is Lee Scoresby's uh, kind of demise in this book where, you know, they're they're running and they're balloon and then they make it through and then they take down the right. There's like four of them chasing and they take down three of them. And then one of them, you know, like he has to stand and defend while the others flee and he's shot and killed. And so on one level, that was cool because it was like, you know, he's like supposed to be like a Texan, right? If there's a way that Texan's going to go down, it's going to be like Alamo stand or whatever, where he's just going to stand and take, let others flee while he, while he covers for him. So it was, you know, a fitting ending, but it wasn't very well done. I thought like I was wanting to care more about Lee Scoresby than I actually did when I read about how he, how he bit the bullet. Yeah. So he's fighting church enemies, right? These are enemies from the church that are coming to stop them. And honestly, this kind of just picked up out of nowhere for me. All of a sudden, we're in this big conflict, and I didn't quite understand the stakes. I never really quite understood what Lee Scoresby's point in the whole book was. And it really just kind of felt like a red herring. And I don't like when there's a long extended red herring plot line. Like, could we have filled these pages with something more relevant to the story? A little more Lyra or Will, perhaps? Yeah. I totally agree. And this is where I think that, you know, he might have had these like ends for these characters in mind. And there's a way that I think he could have done them better. But it just felt like he kind of shoehorned them in and wrapped up some characters in unsatisfying ways. Especially because Lee Scoresby died saying, look, Will's father, protect Lyra. I'm going to sacrifice myself here. Protect Lyra. That was his, that, that's what he was doing. And then Will's father really did not follow through on that promise for longer than like 10 seconds. No, no, he didn't. Well, because Will's father the entire time was trying to find this weapon, right? The subtle knife that could take down the authority. And so Will's father, he's another one of those father or one of those parent figures that isn't really a good guy. And so (laughs) these characters, man, they just were out of luck with their parents. I didn't really understand his motivation either. Maybe I missed this, but why was he so bent on serving Lord Israel and getting the subtle knife? Um, you know, I I don't remember. I think that it was more so Lee Scoresby was trying to find the weapon, right? Well, no. Lee Scoresby was all about protecting Lyra. He was trying to protect Lyra. He's also trying to find uh he, he was trying to find Will's father, but the father himself was obviously serving Lord Israel. And so I never really understood that. There must be a reason. I might have missed it. But at the same time, I felt like maybe we should have established that a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And this is when, you know, if you are a big fan of the series and you're listening to us and you're like, what the heck? These people don't know what they're talking about. This is when you should uh, join Discord and tell us what we don't know. Because that's kind of a negative of the book because we both read it. We're both experienced readers. We've read a lot and we should have been able to figure out what the stakes and motivations for this character was instead of, well, he's a character that needs to do X so that Y happens. Yeah, to be fair, I I mean, when I listen to audiobooks, sometimes I allow some other things to seep into my mind and and I miss some details. Uh, So I don't think it's fair to expect authors to endlessly repeat the reasons or motivations, but you can also hint at it in ways to kind of always be reminding your readers. And I think, I feel like authors have realized that a bit more as more and more people go to audiobooks. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. But uh, this is kind of a common critique throughout this book is 
uh, sometimes characters are just in there to have something happen, right? So that they can fulfill a plot point. Were there any other storylines that you were interested in that you were like uh, wondering how they were going to end or wrap up? Yeah, one storyline that I was interested in was not in the book at all. There was a huge gaping hole in the book from Lord Israel. Where was he? I mean, this guy is the center of the whole conflict. Zero pages of the book was he actually in. Yeah, I think that it was hinted that he was in yet another world. And he was setting up his, like, a big base of operations so that he could prepare to take on the authority. Right. He's building an army. And the angels that you've seen a bit throughout this book, who I thought were good angels until the end, and I guess now we're supposed to believe that these are fallen angels that are going to be fighting against the authority. So Lord Israel is building this army, which just kind of raises more questions to me, like, how is Lord Israel able to build this army? Why do they respect him? What is his role here? Is he some ancient being as well? Like, was he a participant in the first fight with the authority? So more questions. I expect we'll get answers for this, but I would like to have satisfactory answers here because I felt like Lord Israel's absence was a big elephant in the room. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And what about Miss Coulter? What did you think about what she did in this book? Yeah, so she's in the book more. I was satisfied with her. You still kind of saw her being charming, but also nefarious. She killed Lord What's-His-Face. Someone tell us this guy's name, please. But uh, yeah, she goes back and betrays this guy who seemed like he might be uh, a bit of a force to be reckoned with in the final book as well. But no, she took him out and she continues to exhibit this mysterious power. She gets all of the specters to follow her, even though previously... The specters are like mindless beings that kill adults, but no, they follow Mrs. Coulter for some reason. So again, she's got this kind of mysterious magic. I, I mentioned this in the first book that I wanted this explained. Josh told me it would not be explained, so I'm a little disappointed in that. But uh, I thought she was still kind of true to her character and her golden monkey was still very, very evil. Yeah, for sure. And I also like that she, in the first book, you could tell that she still like loved Lyra and wanted to do what she could to protect her, even... Though like Lyra, Lyra would betray her, and she wasn't really honest with Lyra, she still like freaked out when they she found out that they were trying to like separate her from her demon and like wanted to protect her. And in this book, she kind of is like out to get Lyra now. Like she has kind of lost that maternal instinct. I think right. So towards the end of the book, she finally got the answer from one of the witches that she'd been seeking throughout the series, which is why is Lyra so important? Apparently, there was some prophecy about Lyra. Oh, look, another book where there is a prophecy about a young girl. Yay, I just (laughs) love this storyline. Enough already. So, well, who is Lyra prophesied to be? Yes, so she is a second Eve, and Mrs. Coulter is bent upon preventing a second fall. So, therefore, she needs to, I guess, eliminate Lyra. Yeah, so I thought that was pretty interesting. I mean, I think that you got hints about this in the first book, but it's pretty, I thought it was not stunning is the right word, but it took it from being kind of a metaphor to like being in your face of like, okay, well, Eve is, or Lyra is supposed to represent Eve and how Eve, her relationship with humanity and sin, you know, the classical story of Eve falling and introducing sin into the world. This is now saying, okay, this is supposed to be a direct representation of that. Yeah, so the representation to religion was much more in your face in this book. The fact that they say that Lyra is a second Eve 
there are a lot of things that can happen here, a lot of directions this can go, and I'm not certain what exactly to expect in the third book. So if Lyra's Eve, does that mean that Will is Adam and then but then again Lyra's father is meant to represent Satan? I think that's pretty obvious and, and we can't discount that. But then again, her professor friend was told by the Dark Matter computer to go and play the role of the serpent, but wouldn't Lord Azrael already be doing that? So I don't think that I'm not expecting a direct like one-to-one comparison of, okay, this character is this character from the Bible, and this is then what they're going to do. But I think it will be an interesting retelling. So, okay, it's interesting you say that because, so the serpent, obviously, like in the classical story of Adam and Eve, represents Satan. But what else does the serpent represent? Temptation, the entrance of sin into the world. And knowledge, right? Okay. Telling you that, yeah. Sure. So, so here's this professor, right, that is communicating with uh, with dark matter and trying to get the answers. And so she, rep- I think, in in my interpretation, of all of this kind of represents the knowledge that comes from, in some way, science and and moving from religion to more science based, but also represents knowledge in general. And that's where I think that the prophecy of her becoming the snake is comes into play, or the serpent. And and I assume that she will have a role to play in the third book. As we were kind of going through this conversation, I was thinking, ooh, oh no, if if Lyra is Eve and she is going probably to fall, so to speak, that means if Pantalaimon, her demon, represents innocence, then we're probably going to see a separation between Lyra and Pantalaimon. And that uh, that's going to be kind of sad, right? As, as Lyra grows up, and I'm assuming this is going to be an emotional moment. I, don't tell me if I'm right or not, Josh, but that's something that I would expect to see in the third book. Okay. Well, so I take it you're you're excited to jump into the third book? Yeah, I actually have it checked out already. Library Hold came through, so uh, I started already, read the first chapter. Nice. Okay, so as you've been reading, Stephen, what do you think that uh, the phrase or the term like His Dark Materials means? It's kind of an interesting way to name a series. I can't think of another series. Usually series are called, you know, something grand like The Wheel of Time, The Stormlight Archive something that represents like a compilation of books and stories, but His Dark Materials, kind of an interesting name for a series, first of all. I'm guessing it has something to do with the Alethiometer, the Subtle Knife, and the Amber Spyglass, which we'll see in the next book. I don't know what that is yet, obviously. And some of that's just because, look, that's what the cover artwork is, and these are kind of the main symbols and their materials. So, I think you'd be kind of dumb not to think, okay, that's probably what the materials are referring to. I'm also going to go out on a limb and say that these these tools, the alethiometer and the knife at least, are obviously connected to God. They're probably connected to Satan as well. Like the dust is powering the alethiometer. We know that. We know that the knife has some ancient origin. So I think we're going to maybe see our expectations subverted a little bit in the third book where, like, let's say, for example, it turns out the alethiometer was leading Lyra astray the whole time and just trying to get her to do some other purpose. And that might have something to do with the fact that they call Lyra Eve. All right. Very nice. Well, I don't want to give too much away because of spoilers, but I, I like your thought process on this. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like, you know, as I read more, I'm getting a little better at really breaking these stories down. It's kind of fun. Yeah. I, I like it, Stephen. You, I mean, you have a keen mind, a, a subtle... A subtle knife mind, uh-huh. if you will. Yes, yes. <laughs> Fantastic. 
Okay, on that note, uh, two little little takeaways for me. Final thoughts, if you will. One thing, uh, and, and these are little jokes. So one thing I thought was funny, there's this line about climate change that's randomly thrown in towards the end that I thought was just kind of random. And I was like, really? Okay, do you need to push your agenda that far? Where <laughs> Will was like, we're, we're messing up the world because we're changing the climate. And he's not sure about it. And Lyra's like, yeah, we're totally doing that. And of course, Lyra just is a total liar and she agrees with everything. Look, and it's kind of funny to say that in this book when the agenda is being pushed so far. And there's obviously strong religious undertones. So so do you think Lyra is supposed to represent kind of just everyone that just assumes that that is correct? Climate change is an issue? Or do you think that's just what her character would react? I don't think there's any symbolism. I think Philip Pullman's just saying, yeah, I believe in climate change and you should too. And my main character is going to say you should. And I, I, I'll speak for myself, like, I'm not a client, climate change denier by saying that. Like, I don't think people are like sheeple if they believe in climate change at all. But I think that's a that's a good point, Stephen. Yeah, look, I'm not trying to say, I, I'm not going to tell you where I fall on climate change one way or the other. I'm just saying, I don't think authors need to blatantly push their agenda in their books. Like, yeah. let's let readers kind of make their own decisions a little bit. Okay, have have a little bit of subtleness in there. If you will, yeah, yeah. Let's keep everything subtle. That's our that's our word for the podcast. <laughs> okay, all right. I, that that's a good take. I mean, fair enough. Okay, finally, you know I love Lyra's character. My favorite quote. I'll read it to you. This is when Lyra is trying to smart her way past. I think a security guard professor at at Oxford, and the professor quote looks at her carefully, but he was no match for the bland and vacuous docility. Lyra could command. I thought that was a beautifully written quote. Totally summed up her character. I loved it. Fair enough. So this leads me into one more just small discussion that we actually haven't really had about the series. What do you think about the prose in the series? I think it's excellent. I think the writing is very accessible for all ages, but doesn't it doesn't have you thinking, oh, this is a YA book because it's dumbed down some. No, like the prose is top notch. But it's also not overly flowery. It keeps the action moving along really well. And I think readers of all ages can easily jump right into the prose. Fair enough. I I agree with you. I do think that this is, I think that the prose would lend it to more people considering this like, quote unquote, literature. You know, a lot of people, snobby people, in my opinion, don't consider like fantasy literature um, because they reserve that for more highbrow uh, writing. And so I think that this would qualify in most people's minds as like great literature without being in your face and impossible to access for the age group it's intended for while make it in, making it an enjoyable read. Yeah. If there's one thing that will really get me triggered, it's someone saying fantasy is not literature because it's not great expectations or it's not whatever that was written back in the day and it doesn't have the same quality of prose. It's like, whatever. There are so many excellent life lessons and really hard-hitting facts about life that you can find in fantasy books. Maybe not every fantasy book, but honestly, most of the books that I read, I come away a better person because I've learned more about myself. I've learned more about the world. If anyone ever tells me that fantasy is not literature, don't do it. Do not come on Discord and do that. (laughs) Well, I think if people are listening to this podcast, even then they're probably not in that camp, so... There's I don't know how many like college professors are listening to this uh this podcast being like, Oh, these young bucks, they don't know what real literature is. 
Look, bring it on, college professors. Professors from Oxford, bring it on. And then if they do, they're probably not going to know what Discord is. Yeah, that's fine. I don't want to talk to those people anyway. Actually, no, I do. I do. I do. I want to debate this with them. English professor from Oxford of today, call me up. Let's talk. Hopefully you like fantasy. All right. And you know, um, this is kind of a tangent too, but uh, did you watch Daniel Green's interview with, with Jim Butcher? I did. Yes. Uh, exciting news from Jim Butcher that there's not one, but two Dresden Files books coming out this year. Yeah. So, but it was interesting. You know, he had a professor that actually pushed him to write a pulpy kind of uh, of series with the Dresden Files. I thought that was interesting. You know, you don't hear many, too many stories like that. Yeah. And thank goodness he did, because that has been Jim Butcher's strongest writing to date. I've read two of his other series, and while I like them okay, Dresden Files is really, that's his calling card. And I think, you know, authors just kind of find what works for them and go with it. And even though Dresden Files is totally pulpy and fun, like, there's a lot of deep emotional moments and some hard-hitting life themes that you can find in a book about a wizard in Chicago. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I'm glad that you uh, like this book, Stephen. I'm excited to hear your takes on the third book and how this series wraps up. In particular, one storyline in the third book I'm excited to hear your thoughts about. So, Okay, excited to give them to you in probably a week or two once I get through the book. Thanks, listeners, for listening to another episode of Phantology. You can find us on social media at Phantology Books. Check out Patreon and join us on Discord and check out our new website. Thanks, Josh, for joining me. Thanks, Stephen. All right, see you later.